0: Welcome to episode 305 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, a certified mindful habit coach, uh, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultramarathon runner, and creator of the Path Back, an online pornography recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from the uh, effects of turning to pornography as a coping mechanism. And last week, I did an episode. It was part one of two. Today is not part two. That'll be coming in a week from now. But I did part one of two of just how to get the shame out of turning to unhealthy coping mechanisms in general. Yes, we were talking about pornography, but uh, as the feedback that I got attested to that the turning to unhealthy coping mechanisms does fit for anything, whether it's turning to food, or your phone, or binge-watching shows on any of the streaming services. So we've got part two coming up next week, and I have received several questions. So if you have questions, go to TonyOverBay.com and click on the Contact Me or Contact Us or some sort of contact form, and feel free to ask your questions if there are things that I can answer, and I will cover those in next week's episode. But today, we are going to talk about context. And I have been speaking a lot lately, and I have been starting most of the talks, I usually have some fun facts about the differences of men and women and how their brain works. And uh, that's always fun, because we really do work a little bit differently. And uh, I'll give you an example of that. Let me let me talk about one that I, I share often. Actually, I'll give you a couple because these are really fun. And the first one is uh neuropsychologist Professor Ruben Gurr of the University of Pennsylvania, used brain scan tests to show that when a man's brain is in a resting state, at least 70% of its electrical activity is shut down. Scans of women's brain showed 90% activity during the same state. He said, confirming that women are constantly receiving and analyzing information from their environment. And then my bit that follows is that if I, I would make the joke that if I'm working with a couple and I've been working with the guy in particular. So when his wife turns to him and says, Hey, what are you thinking? And he says nothing that there's actual data that shows that he's not really thinking of much of anything that at least 70% of his electrical activity is shut down. But the work that is done is then he can then turn to his wife and say, and what are you thinking? And then when she says that I'm thinking about all kinds of things, uh, the kids and what's going on and, and school and schedules, and what are we going to do and vacations? And that, that, that is absolutely true that they're that in that same resting state that a woman's brain shows 90% electrical activity during that same state. So they're constantly, Receiving and analyzing information. And while I have this up, some notes from one of the talk that I gave recently, here's another one that's pretty interesting. It says, a study from Stanford University found that when a female was shown an emotional image, nine different areas of her brain lit up, while only two lit up in the man. And we have two emotional systems, the mirror neuron system, or the MNS. And the temporal parietal junction system, the TPJ. So the mirror neuron system is responsible for emotional empathy. It helps one feel what the other person is feeling. And the temporal parietal junction, or the TPJ, is resp- responsible for cognitive empathy. It actually helps somebody distance themselves from the, perfect, uh, from the person's emotions, focusing instead on analytically solving the problem. So cognitive empathy is more of that, what can I do about it? And then the emotional empathy is helping one feel what the other person's feeling. This research said that both sexes start their empathy process in the mirror neuron system, but the male brain quickly switches over to this cognitive empathy part or the temporal parietal junction. And so we see this clash all the time where a woman may tell the man about a problem looking for emotional support, but he unable to actually solve the problem, won't see the value of having a lengthy conversation about it and say, what can I do about it? So I love when you can have the brain science that uh, goes behind this. Actually, one more. Well, I've got you here. This one's this one is one that will typically get a little bit of a laugh. A study of adults in the Netherlands monitored the brain activity of 17 to 25 year old males and females as they processed white noise and music. So the females had an intense response to both sounds, both both the white noise and the music. And the males responded to the music, but deactivated to the white noise as if they didn't even hear it. So this may be because during male fetal brain development, testosterone impacts the formation of the auditory system, making it block out unwanted noise and what they call repetitious acoustic stimuli. So this becomes an issue in a lot of relationships, uh, male female relationships where, and I'm going so gender stereotyped here, but again, it's fascinating when you've got some brain science to back it up. But a woman may say something and the guy won't hear her, and she will repeat herself several times, which makes his brain register her voice as unwanted, repetitious. Acoustic stimuli. So before you know it, it devolves into he never listens or she's always nagging. And a lot of us will get stuck in this feedback loop of behavior, creating this fascinating chicken or the egg scenario. Does my mom say the same thing 500 times to my dad because my dad doesn't hear her? Or does my dad tune her out because she repeats herself and she then becomes repetitious acoustic stimuli? That's the fun stuff about the way that we differ in male and female brains. But where I have been going lately is a, an exercise, and I did talk about this on a podcast a while ago. So if you have heard this, feel free to, you will know the answer in, in your head and just say that to yourself. And this exercise is from the book On Being Certain, Believing You Are Right Even When You're Not by Robert A. Burton. I'm going to read a paragraph to you. I'm going to read it at normal speed. This experience cannot be duplicated once you know the explanation. So take a moment to ask yourself how you feel about the paragraph when you hear what I'm about to read to you. So here's the paragraph. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is better than a street. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. And too many people doing the same thing can also cause problems. One needs a lot of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. And if things break loose, however, you will not get a second chance. And if I'm... When I, I just spoke again last night and I did this exercise and then I just say, what does that sound like? And people are just look at me with confusion because it just sounds like a lot of words and pretty much absolute nonsense. Is this paragraph comprehensible or is it meaningless? And your mind is probably trying to sort through possible explanations, even including, am I insane? But I'm assuming that you know that there's going to be a, a payoff here. And so if I just give you two words, then see how this whole thing changes. So if I say the words, a kite. Now let's read this again. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. At first, it's better to run than to walk, and you may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can also cause problems. One needs a lot of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. And a rock will serve as an anchor. And if things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. So, with that simple word kite, uh, the two words, a kite, then all of a sudden now we have context. And when we have context, it makes so much sense. And from the book, he's talking about this feeling of certainty that we want to desperately know and figure things out and be certain. But the whole premise of the book on being certain which is, he says, believing you're right, even when you're not, is he talks about, is there even such a thing as certainty? And that's a phenomenal book. It really is. I'd like to make the joke that it comes with a free existential crisis, but actually when you really embrace the concepts that it, it does, uh, it actually brings some peace, I think. Um, but today I want to talk about context because the reason I've been talking about this so much when I go and speak is because I it seems that when I'm talking, it doesn't matter if I'm talking about uh, people in relationships. So they're trying to understand their spouse. If I'm talking about parenting, where people are trying to know the best way to communicate with their teen, or if I am talking about a training businesses on how to better communicate between the uh, staff and leadership and these sort of things, or if I'm just talking to an individual who feels like something is wrong with them, that we're just missing context. So often we're missing context. And I think that example shows you that it can, with a little bit of extra information, then we can add this beautiful thing called context, which can give us more understanding and even more empathy for someone and what their experience is or what they're going through. So I found a really phenomenal article that I'm going to use as my muse today. It's from a website called freepsychologyhelp.com. You can't beat the name of that website. And it is written by a person named Drew Makita, who is a licensed professional counselor and an associate professor. And this is from September of 2018. But I love uh, the fact Drew talks about the importance of context when diagnosing mental disorders. So as I love to do, I'm going to read through this a little bit. I'm going to give my own commentary because I've been thinking about this so much as uh, as a therapist with people in my office. And even as I go about my daily life. And I'll tell you, let me give you another example. Last, there's a bio. I, you always have to have someone read your bio. And I make the joke that it is one of the most uncomfortable, awkward moments that a speaker goes through where... You give them this bio, and we all want to know who we're going to go there and see and hear. So it's not like I'm um, adding things that aren't true into my bio, but when you put everything together, it can sound a bit pretentious or pompous or arrogant or those sort of things. So I typically am sitting there, I put my head down a little bit. Someone's reading the bio, and whether the bio says okay, best-selling author or award-winning podcast host, and how many episodes, and and then typically there's a part that says and uh, he has ran 100, 150 marathons and ultra marathons including a dozen or more of distances of 100 miles or more and so you just hear that and some people are thinking oh okay this guy might have something to say where other people are thinking man this guy probably thinks a lot of himself but then when I get up there and I talk about even someone reading the bio and you talk about context and you talk about okay my ultra running that that was the only way that I felt alive that was my happy place as I was uh, going through this period of over a decade of being in a job and in a career that I now know that It was just this socially compliant goal that I was doing the whole career in the software industry for over a decade because I felt like I had to or I would let someone down. I would let uh, whether it was my wife down, my parents down or whoever it would be, because I just needed to go in there and suck it up and put my 30 years in and then retire, whatever that looked like for me. But knowing that I was dying on the inside, so I turned to running and then more running and even more running as a coping mechanism. So when you have that context and all of a sudden now I say, okay, a hundred, 150 ultra marathons or marathons that I would go speak often the more that I was on my mental health journey of becoming a therapist and saying that, Oh, it wasn't just, I'll go out for a run. It was that if I skipped, I would usually take one day off a week. And if I made it two days or three days off for some reason, which was very rare, then I would say that I feel uh, shorter, balder, and I feel like a worse husband, father, and you fill in the blank. So those uh, 100, 150 races were the thing that was always in front of me that gave me the motivation to continue to get up every morning, well before the crack of dawn, because I had this uh, no impact on my family policy, because I also wanted to be this best version of myself as a husband or a father. And now we have context. So now instead of saying, wow, he just really thinks a lot of himself, and I wouldn't go run and take all that time. But now if we know that, okay, that was the way that I stayed sane until I truly felt like I found my sense of purpose in doing this uh, career that I do now. And we have a little bit more context or the the best-selling author. And I made this joke last night. My book is called, he's a porn addict. Now what an expert and a former addict answer your questions. So not ideally uh, the, the coffee table book. When I had the author, Suzanne Falter on my podcast a few weeks ago, I mentioned, I might've mentioned that she sent me an autographed copy of her book about self-care for the extremely busy woman. Now I am not an extremely busy woman, but the book was phenomenal. I went through, I, I read a lot of it and she autographed it. And I thought, wow, um, if I just send somebody a random that I've been on an interview with, or that I have on my show, and I autograph my book, he's a porn addict. Now what an expert and an addict to answer your questions. I am beyond happy and proud of the book because the book it, it's phenomenal. It really is. But it's not really one that I say, "Hey, here you go," because it makes this insinuation. I don't know that maybe I think that they are struggling with turning to pornography as an unhealthy coping mechanism. But if you look at that in the context of over 15 years of work with over a thousand people that have struggled with turning to compulsive sexual behavior as a coping mechanism and being able to help those people become better, better parents, better, again, typically working with a guy, with husband, father, they find their career that they like, they find peace with their faith, they find uh, a better version of themselves with their health. Uh, They find themselves in a better position with their job. And so then the context of that book makes a lot more sense with the work that I do. So this uh, concept of context is just really fascinating. And it goes back to the modality that I love, acceptance and commitment therapy, where we are all just going through life for the first time. That's what we're doing. This is the first time that I've been on the mic on Tuesday, January 25th at 526 a.m., um, with you uh, talking to an audience and wondering what you are going to, how you're going to take all this in, what you're going to remember, if I've said things before. And so I am responding and saying and reacting because I am me, because I'm a human being and I'm a culmination of all of my experiences. I'm 3 I'm three billion neurons that are just walking around reacting to certain situations. I am a product of my nature, my nurture, my birth order, my abandonment, my DNA, my rejection, my hopes, my dreams, and so when I have a thought or a feeling or I take an action, the reason I do is because I did. And then we can make sense of things from there. And when someone else says, I wouldn't do that, or are you sure you want to do that? Or why did you do that? That So often that's where we feel that psychological reactance or that instant negative reaction of being told what to do. And, and that's built in. It's innate within us and it's there as a protection. And it's because no one truly does understand What I have been through, what you have been through, or what anyone's been through. So that's why the the, uh, idea of context is so important in helping us understand and have more empathy, uh, sympathy, and just to be able to have a better connection with others. Because when we can drop the rope of the tug of war on trying to tell someone what they're doing is wrong or why that I wouldn't do what they're doing, then we can really start to have more of a connection with others. And the reason I wanted to talk about this today, and I haven't even got to this article yet is because so many of the things I've been talking about on other episodes come into play here. This is where the context of the context, we're talking about context, but seeking external validation. How often are we just telling someone what we think they should do or what our opinion is or what our experience was about anything? Because we want that external validation. We want them to do what we did so that it will make us feel better about what we did. It almost like makes us feel subconsciously like we must be right. Or how often are we trying to tell someone what to do, even if we don't know what their situation is, because we want them to say, wow, thank you. You're, you're amazing. You're my hero. Because again, we want that external validation, but we need to start with so much more curiosity. And the key to doing that is understanding the context and where someone is coming from. And then even knowing at that point, we will still never completely understand what someone else is going through because we've never lived their life. We've never walked, uh, In their shoes. There's phenomenal studies on even looking at identical twins and you can have them view an output or you can have them view something so they can take an input and then they will have two completely separate outputs even though these are the most genetically identical people that have probably spent a fair amount of time together than anyone else and that they will still take in information and then have a completely different output. So let's get to this article today by Drew Makita, and it's called The Importance of Context When Diagnosing Mental Disorders. So Drew says that when making a diagnosis of a mental health disorder, it is so important to look at the context of a person's life. And while many mental health disorders expand far beyond the everyday circumstances of life and dive into much deeper biological issues, some mental health disorders can be best explained as byproducts of multiple life influences. And I really appreciate the way Drew said that, that... They are explained as byproducts of multiple life influences because we go through life and then our actions, reactions, thoughts, feelings, emotions are truly these byproducts of the things that we are going through in life. So he says that as a therapist, a mental health professional, or other person attempting to understand diagnosis, the context of a person's life should be fully understood by any clinician making a diagnosis. He said it's incredibly easy to get complacent and just wave the depression or bipolar or any diagnosis wand. And he says he's such a proponent of waiting on making a diagnosis when possible until more information is evaluated. And sometimes a diagnosis absolutely is needed. But then I run into situations where I talk with people who other therapists have just made these broad sweeping diagnoses of Oh, that person has bipolar disorder, even if they don't really know what that person is going through. or that person uh, is a sex addict, or that person is has clinical depression without knowing context. because and then what happens, I think so often is is then this person, sometimes we hand someone a diagnosis and then they feel like, okay, I'm bipolar. I need to go read all the things I can about bipolar disorder. And then we all want to feel like some sort of structure or we want to feel like we understand. We want this certainty. And so then I can only imagine I'm being a little bit beaten around the bush. I'm working with people who have received things like bipolar diagnoses well long ago in their lives by therapists who just gave them a bit of like a passing and a magic wand approach and said, oh, yeah, you're definitely bipolar. And instead of really getting to understand the person and really getting to dig in there deep and understand the context of why they act the way that they do. And then once somebody receives uh, this diagnosis, and again, I'm not anti-diagnosis. I have people that have had some incredible success once they understand the diagnosis. Once I understood my ADHD attentive type, then with that diagnosis, which I I have a literal diagnosis from a psychiatrist and uh, now with my general practitioner and I take medication for it, it has been absolutely life-changing, but I am also working with someone right now, just as an example, who was given a bipolar diagnosis by a therapist who if it feels like really likes to just start by saying, here's the diagnosis, start doing all the things that have to do with what this diagnosis says. And then we'll try to make sense of things instead of trying to understand the person before making the diagnosis. So he does say, he says, I'm a huge proponent of waiting on making a diagnosis when possible until more information is evaluated. And yeah, sometimes a diagnosis is needed immediately as uh, lives are in danger. Courts need documentation and immediate change in someone's life as a traumatic nature But while these do occur for so many mental health professionals rushing on making a diagnosis is, unfortunately, it's a very common place. So a good professional, as uh, Drew says, spots many disorders immediately when they walk in and the symptoms are indistinguishable and can only be a few things. That's where I talk often about uh, the concept of personality disorders or people that have narcissistic traits or tendencies or this emotional immaturity. That those things are evident almost in the first session when somebody walks in a room because it's somebody that doesn't really have a true sense of self. And so they need to have this just they have these insecurities. And so they immediately need to feel special or they are shifting the blame or they're trying to get you to join with them instead of really trying to dig in on what they're in there for. It's always about or it's often about. Well, wait do you, way do you meet my wife or way do you see my husband, those sort of things. So you spot a lot of those things coming in that even the person themselves doesn't really understand that this is what, this isn't the, yeah, I want to say normal. That's such a air quote word, but this isn't the normal way that someone comes in and talks about their anxiety or depression of coming in and saying, man, I think I'm depressed because let me tell you about my spouse, that sort of thing. So the the goal for the therapist, for the mental health professional, is to try to gather as much data and truly be the one person that gets to understand all of these thoughts and feelings and emotions that are coming from an individual. I love nothing more. And I had some experiences recently where I've met with someone for a very long time, and then they just upped their game and let me know about so many more things from their past They give me so much more context. Now, as a therapist, I I sometimes make the joke of, hey, it looks like you buried the lead. And this would have been nice to know months ago. But I also understand that everyone's journey is their journey. And that is based off of all the things that they've been through. So who am I to say, why didn't you tell me that earlier? Because the person really has to feel comfortable in order to be able to open up and share. So, um, and Drew says, he nails that too. He says, uh, as all therapists know, you don't get all the information from a client on day one. He said, although sometimes sessions are a word vomit of 30 years of pent up emotions unloading, but most first sessions are basically interviews between the client and the therapist to understand one another. You're starting to build trust. You're starting to build rapport and really getting into the basics. And he said, so I do, I really like uh, the cut of Drew's jib. he says, think of it like a non-sexual first date regardless of the information exchanged on day one, more background will be coming in the future sessions. So gathering as much information and context in the life of a person will help ensure the diagnosis is accurate and not just the reflection of a temporary mood. And that's why I think what is so important. So certain behaviors do, he says, indicate a specific disorder or category of disorders. However, just because somebody is exhibiting the criteria for a disorder doesn't necessarily mean that he or she has that disorder. And the our diagnostic manual, the DSM, does a, a pretty good job, and he notes clarifying that behaviors need to be present for X amount of time or that diagnosis may be made uh, under certain circumstances. But there are certain times where there can be completely reactions that may seem absolutely, uh, I will just use the word crazy or insane by someone. But then in the context of what that person's going through would make absolute sense. So he's got a case study and I like this. He says, let's say Timmy comes into my office for an appointment because he's been bummed out. He says he isn't sure if he wants to live, has no joy, problems, sleeping, no appetite, nothing brings him joy and he just wants to be alone. So uh, as Drew says, sounds like he has major depressive disorder or at least a major depressive episode. And he absolutely meets that criteria. But he says, uh, better get my diagnosis wand out and document this. And he says, woohoo, he says, "There, partner, slow down on your magic diagnosis, diagnosing one a second, all you have, all you've done is identify that Timmy meets criteria of a depressive disorder. But did you ask about the reasons behind these symptoms? And I want you to put yourself in the situation of asking for the reasons behind why someone in your family is acting the way they are, or asking or the reasons behind why your spouse shows up the way they do. Yet another plug. I'm going to plug my magnetic marriage course, which is coming soon. My four pillars of a connected conversation. My first pillar is that no one wakes up and thinks I'm going to hurt my spouse today. Or there's a reason why people act the way they do. Why They may act withdrawn or angry or because that might be the only way that they feel like they can be heard or understood. And uh, so that can be so important. So he says, um, is there anything that's happened in your life that's been hard? He's been asking this fictional character, Timmy. And how long has this been going on? Timmy responds. And boy, and I want to tell you, this is, there's so much in this article that I appreciate from from the author, Drew, but I feel like this is the part where I just feel like this is one of the things I love about being a therapist, even though the stories can be very sad, but you get these moments often. So he says, Timmy responds, well, this week has been rough. My brother died. My wife left me. I got diagnosed with cancer. My dog ran away. I got fired from my job and I need a root canal. So as Drew aptly says, yikes, Timmy might have just had the worst week in the history of the world. So honestly, he should be showing the signs of depression. And he says, Drew says, I'm kind of depressed just making him up. But I think as mental health professionals, we've all had those clients. I honestly, when people come in and they say, it's been a rough week, I had this yesterday. And then you say, hey, tell me about the week. And they say, no, I don't know. It just came out of nowhere. But if you just start to slowly work through the week, there's so often a lot of different things going on. And that's where I jump back into this. You're the only version of you. So actually the thoughts and feelings and emotions you have are simply because you are you and you are reacting to these situations because this is the first culmination of all these experiences that you've ever been through at this point in your life. So the first thing to do is to give yourself grace and to say, interesting, but those things are happening. And this is the way that I'm showing up or this is the way that I'm feeling. And being able to just, just, give that context, step outside of yourself and say, okay, look at how I'm feeling based on all these things. Like that really is interesting because that's going to start to help us get away from the what's wrong with me story and start to get us closer to the, oh, so let me see what happens. What led to all of these triggers? What led to this bad week? In Timmy's situation, there are so many things there that he could not have dealt with. His brother dying. I don't know about his wife leaving him, uh, but his uh, diagnosed with cancer, dog running away, fired from his job, needs the root canal. So there are so many things there that you just are going to find yourself feeling and, and reacting to and being able to just be present and turn toward things that matter to you, or even just accepting that this is gonna be a really rough time and grieve, grieve like no one's business for a few days to get through those emotions. So he says the feelings he's having are normal, serious, absolutely. And he says he is expected. And he said, in fact, if he wasn't showing the signs, I would be more concerned. This is again, where I I love the way that Drew's saying this, because I often say that these are the way, this is how you're feeling based on all of your thoughts, feelings, emotions, all those things. And if you didn't feel this way, it would probably mean, and I use a lot of humor in my sessions, but I would say, then we're talking, we're looking for psychopathy. Are you a psychopath? Because you don't have any emotion, even though you just went through all of these things. So Timmy is still going to absolutely need counseling to cope with his life stressors. But at this point, is a diagnosis really going to be very helpful? Drew says, as a believer that medication is is an option, but maybe one further down the road from for mental health disorders. He said, which medication requires a diagnosis in this context? Diagnosis may not be necessary. Can Timmy make it through these next couple of weeks and then get into a better place? Because again, that is a lot that he's dealing with. And so in, in the context of all that he's dealing with, it makes sense that he's feeling the way that he is. So Timmy may need the help from a counselor, but maybe not the diagnosis at this time. Now, if things continue this way, it would likely be that he would need a diagnosis, which is another plug to go seek help, which I was not planning on running the ad right now, but it makes sense. So if you are trying to get through some tough things, go see a mental health professional. And if you don't know where to start, go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch and you'll get 10% off your first month's treatment, But even if it's just for this situational depression or these things that just happen, if it's seasonal affective disorder, if it's things that just come upon and you're not sure if this is something that I really need to take a look at long-term, if I need to look for some diagnosis or on the road to medication, or if it's just a lot going on in my life. So go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. And the assessment form there is actually very phenomenal. I feel like This is just me saying this off the cuff, but you work with so many people that are in the dating world now when they become single or they're in their 20s or whatever that looks like. And so it's such a swipe. Stick with me. I promise this is going to make sense where you have to put three or four pictures up. But one's got you by a waterfall. One's got you with uh, you borrow someone's golden retriever has to have a bandana. And then you hold your niece or nephew. And then so you got your pictures and you say a line from a movie. And then now we date. And you swipe through and you find people that look attractive and that sort of thing. But there was a time back before the the app version of dating and where people would fill out these extensive reports of their, their psychological profiles and the dating sites. It was like, I don't know, the match.coms or I don't remember the ones. okcupids or those sort of things that then they made their money and having such a, an amazing algorithm that the more information they got, they could pair you up with people that then you would feel really a connection to. And, and then things were a lot easier. So where I'm going with that is just when you are. So where I'm going with that is that I feel like even in this betterhelp.com assessment, because they're starting to become more and more companies that are doing the online therapy that I feel like the intake form from betterhelp.com is pretty phenomenal. And that's their version of their algorithm to be able to figure out the best fit with a counselor. So go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch, get 10% off your first month's uh, treatment because you deserve to have a higher emotional baseline. What is context? Drew says that context is basically anything that is impacting someone's life. And it includes so many things that will vary from person to person. And, uh, and he just goes through a few of these and we'll, we'll hit these pretty quick. Backers impacting context on mental health disorders, family, he says, love them or hate them. They're such a huge factor in everyone's life. He said, if your family is deceased, that could also be leading to some of your mental health issues or so family can play a significant amount of stress. And they can also be a huge ally and they can help a person overcome mental health issues. But he said, we inherently so learn so many of our behaviors from our family members through observation. So when we look at abnormal behavior or possible diagnosis, learning about family dynamics can be mm-hmm. so important. As a couples therapist, and when I'm teaching my four pillars of a connected conversation, which I promise you is, is phenomenal, we're now going through some testimonials of the last round of my magnetic marriage course with my buddy, Preston Pugmire, and we have an independent person that's going through the testimonials, and it changes marriages. And the biggest reason of that, this isn't trying to run an ad for the magnetic marriage course, but it's because so people don't know what they don't know. And so in the context of family, you only know what you saw modeled by your own parents, Or uh, maybe you have a a fictional view of what marriage would look like from a movie or a TV series or that sort of thing. So this is where I feel like going to a professional is so helpful to understand what my experience with my family is and and, and how has that affected me? And is it again, and I use the word sometimes, but is it normal or is, has my family experience been very unique or different? And that's where a, a really solid mental health professional who has now seen literally hundreds of if not thousands of people understands a little bit more about what that family dynamic looks like or or could look like and why then you react or experience things the way you do because you've only had the family experience that you've had so when people talk about the cliche dad issues mom issues those are real they really are and so the way that you went through life or the relationship that you had with your parents one or both uh, really can affect the way that then you see relationships moving forward so talk about context. Biology. He says your family and biology may be different. If you are adopted, your family and DNA are not the same. The predispositions of a person have always been important. And he said, are there any trends in diagnosis? Do you have a family history of depression or a family history of anxiety? Bessel van der Kolk in the book, The Body Keeps the Score. And I think I might even quote this wrong now, but I believe that the phrase is the neurons that fire together, wire together. I believe that was what he says, but the concept of where if someone um, is constantly feeling this heightened stress, that then did they grow up in a home where there was violence, where there was uh, emotional outbursts, where there was yelling, where there was physical violence. And so as a kid, that your your cortisol levels are high. Again, they fire together, they wire together. Are you now predisposed to having higher anxiety? And now when you uh, marry someone else and have kids, then are they going to have a little bit higher of uh cortisol level? So do we have a family history again of anxiety or depression or you know, ADHD or those sort of things? Home life, I think goes back to that concept that we were talking about earlier uh, for family. But looking at a person's living situation is crucial. If the person, if the place where you go, Drew says to recharge and relax, which is home for so many people, is unpleasant, it will impact your mental health. And he talks about sometimes a change in a living situation can really help or eliminate a lot of the symptoms that cause people's mental health issue. And I find that one of the things that I hear often when I'm doing couples therapy is someone may ask. They say, is it normal for me to, to feel a little bit anxious when I hear my spouse pull into the driveway? And uh, the truth is, that's, that's not. It might be more normal than one would think. But is it healthy? No. And so that's that's your own body saying, OK, if I don't feel comfortable, we need to do something. We need to learn how to communicate more effectively. I need to be able to speak my speak my truths or whatever that looks like. So the home life can play a lot in, con- in the role of context. I can think of a couple of examples of clients right now that were roommates after maybe, let's say, a breakup or or that sort of thing. And they were in situations that they'd never been in before. So they did start to feel even uh, more of a sense of hopelessness or anxiety because they felt like that they just didn't feel uh, like they had a place, a place to go and relax and be and to lower their stress. Job. This one is a huge one. in when it turns in terms of context, how we earn a living is such a part of our happiness and overall mental health. Drew says, in particular, in the US, we spend more time at our jobs than anything else in our lives. So whether it's supervisors or annoying customers or not feeling heard or understood or the constant stress and worry or dealing with depressive issues, all of this and more are reports of job dissatisfaction. And people want to be able to feel a sense of pride or take ownership in things or feel a real sense of purpose. And this is why when I talk often about trying to understand what someone's core values are and in an ideal situation, you are working, you're doing a job that is based on a value. And you get to to use your values in your job. I love nothing more than curiosity, knowledge, adventure, authenticity. Those are some of my my the biggest values that I could live by that I've had to come to understand. And the more that I get to use those in this context, that knowledge and the curiosity, I get to be curious about people that I work with. I get to seek knowledge because the world of mental health is evolving. I, I still am not trying to talk negatively about other therapists but i have clients right now that have gone to therapists in the past that just have this here's the things i say here's the exercises i do and you just fall in line and you check these boxes and you get your diagnosis and, and i don't believe that is well that's not the way i operate so looking at someone with curiosity trying to understand more about their experiences in context and then using all the latest data understanding whether it's emotionally focused therapy that leads to the four pillars of a connected conversation whether it's the nurtured heart parenting approach whether it's Valor stages of faith and helping people through their faith journey or the faith crisis or acceptance and commitment therapy and continually to really understand and try to learn how to find your sense of purpose and what your values are that the world of mental health is continually evolving as are we as individuals We do grow. We do change. We go through experiences and then we have uh, new thoughts and feelings and we want to be able to explore those. We want the safety of being able to explore those with another person, with a partner, with your person, the safe person, just being able to to just find purpose in your job and be able to just maybe work some of these values into your job. The next one he talks about in terms of context are relationships. He said, frequently people in my counseling office, and I would say to myself, I don't think you need to be here as much as your blank needs to be. Your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, that can be spouse, you name it, sibling. But factoring in relationships is absolutely necessary because the relationships we hold often tell us a lot about ourselves. Again, I can think of client stories every day. I never want to uh, give details. But thinking of someone recently who had been in a relationship where they never, they were their emotions were quite suppressed. It was someone that had an extreme emotional immaturity, or my client was in a relationship with someone with extreme emotional immaturity, aka narcissistic traits and tendencies. And so she never felt like she could even open up or share her thoughts or feelings or uh, experiences because they would so often get shut. They would so often uh, be told, why are you even telling me that? Or you're crying is manipulative. There were so many negative things. So this person got to the point where Why even say anything? So now as they're re-entering the dating world, they find themselves aware of wanting a a connection. But even then finding people that feel safer to talk to and noticing that they may not be as open or expressive because in previous relationships, that wasn't welcomed. It wasn't a safe thing. So our relationships actually do uh, or absolutely play a role in the context. Physical health. I love how he says being in shape is a subjective term. Technically, everyone has a shape of some sort. But looking at overall health, exercise, diet can be so insightful and understanding to a person's behavior. I've worked with people that have put on well over 100 pounds when they've become depressed and change in their physical health can absolutely play a role in their... If a person has some sort of an illness or physical disability, it can have an impact on their mental health. So this is where the use of drugs and alcohol and other medications or Things that are used primarily as unhealthy coping mechanisms can also take a toll on your physical health. One of the, there's a couple of side effects even to the um, ADHD medication that I take that people that take it are so familiar with, where it, you cannot fall asleep with, with some of the medications that you're on. So you have to watch when you take it because if somebody starts to have less and less sleep, then their brain is not doing all of the wonderful things it does during REM and sleep and resetting and refreshing all the, the chemicals of the brain. So even though it can cause somebody to feel pretty dialed in during the day, be able to complete some projects, if you don't watch out, it can also impact your sleep negatively, or it also uh, removes your appetite. So you can find yourself later in the day, almost mimicking this feeling of anxiety, but it's because you didn't feel hungry and didn't eat. trauma, and I'm going to be talking a lot more about trauma in the coming months. I've been doing a couple of uh, pretty amazing trainings that have to do with trauma, acceptance and commitment therapy and trauma, things like that. But experiencing trauma in your life can absolutely have a substantial impact on your overall mental health for years to come if you aren't one who has dealt with that trauma. If somebody threatens or harms somebody close to you or you, or things happen like sexual assault, he says physical abuse, emotional abuse, car accidents, robberies, the spectrum is so broad, but those things, trauma can absolutely impact and give context to why you feel the way that you do. He's just got a couple more, and then we'll wrap this up. He talks about location. Geographical sadness does appear significant in certain locations. The reasons can be varied. He said it might not be getting enough sunshine in an area and needing a vitamin D lamp. I just had a client tell me about that a few weeks ago, and I'm so fascinated by these things. Or it could require a complete move around the world, just to have a, a different scenery. I talk about this often. I was never able to go back and find the data again, but I went to a training once where I heard someone talk about That moving, a change of scenery, is not always just a you're running away from your problems. That if you are dealing with your problems, that too often, though, when we go back to the same places, even though we're dealing with doing our work, dealing with our problems, it is that concept of our body keeps the score. Our body remembers trauma. And so when we get to a certain area, a certain place around certain people... Our our cortisol levels go up. Our fight or flight starts to kick in, and our amygdala fires up. Our prefrontal cortex shuts down. We can't think as logically. So sometimes our brain is is thinking it's doing us a favor by saying, "I don't like it here." So sometimes moving can be an absolute wonderful thing because you have. And this is what I heard at the training, and I can't find this to save my life. But now you have new streets, new restaurants, new weather, new walking paths, new churches, new theaters, new stores. And so if you are working on yourself and you are in a new environment, sometimes it can just be a feeling of liberation of sorts. So location can really play a role. And then culture. This one's just huge. What's normal and acceptable in one culture may not be in another. And he gives the greatest example here. He says, if a person's talking about speaking to and seeing spirits then that could look like schizophrenia and uh, be an accurate diagnosis by the books for some yet in another culture, it may be normal and a normal cultural belief to speak with spirits and doesn't warrant a di- I do a fair amount of theological Christian counseling, people come into my office with specific beliefs. And it is interesting because if they're talking about being, you know, moved by the Holy ghost or understanding or believing that uh, God has given them direction, then if you take that out of context and, and give that to someone that doesn't have a similar background, then And that's why I like that Drew brought this up, where it could sound interesting. We'll put it that way. So other factors, he said, there could be all kinds of other factors for context. And so he wraps it up with something that is my third pillar in my magnetic marriage course. He gives the Stephen a cubby, seek first to understand, not to be understood. Uh, he also says it's uh, attributed to an old Alcoholics Anonymous adage. But my pillar three is to ask questions before making comments. And that is one of the most powerful things that you can do is try to understand context. And I feel like when we even look at context in our own lives, that will help give ourselves a little bit more grace. Uh, because if beating ourselves up was the way, you know, this road to happiness or road to resiliency, then we would all be pretty uh, amazing right now. and We wouldn't need any help because I feel like we're all pretty good at beating ourselves up. But in reality, the best thing that we can do is understand that in the context of our lives, this is the way we are thinking or feeling or believing and showing up. And that's okay. Because once we stop beating ourselves up, we can take a look with more curiosity at at why or how we're reacting in certain situations so that we can then start to move forward. Moving forward means taking action on the things that matter to me. The things that as I start to, to differentiate, be my own version of me, that I'm going to get that invalidation from others. We'll still run into plenty of people saying, I wouldn't do that, or you should do this, or all those adorable things. But in reality, it's your life. You're going through it for the first time. You're having the thoughts, feelings, and emotions you're doing because you're you, you're human. And it all makes sense when you take in the context of what you're going through. Thanks for being with me today. Again, if you have uh, questions, thoughts, uh, ideas for an upcoming podcast, and hey, the world's starting to maybe open up a little bit more. It's interesting because right before the whole pandemic hit, I was going on the road, doing a little more speaking. I just want to... I'm doing a lot of speaking here locally. I love that stuff. So if you're interested in having me come speak to your group, your congregation, your business, your those sort of things, uh, feel free to reach out through the contact form, contact on tonyoverbay.com. And uh, I just appreciate you being here. I'm blown away every time I look at the stats of the virtual couch or the waking up the narcissism podcast. Uh, huge things ahead in this year. And it is all so much of it is because of the support of the people that listen to the podcast. So thank you for all you do. Um, have an amazing day. Taking us out as per usual is, the wonderful amazing the talented aurora florence with her song it's wonderful all right everybody have a great day we'll see you next time on the virtual Catch. compressed emotions flying past our heads and out the other end the pressures of the daily grind it's wonderful elastic waist and rubber ghost i'm floating past the Push aside the things that matter.